What is the role of a Christian man? Uh, Growing up in the Church of Christ, I must have heard about 50 sermons about the role of women in the church. And if I were to share some of those with you today, most of you would unfriend me on Facebook. (laughs) Not once growing up did I ever hear a talk about what it means to be a Christian man in the world and what the role is of the Christian man. And I hate the word role when it comes to gender because we're not, as human beings, all typecast into certain functions. I like the word opportunity. What is the opportunity of a man who follows God? If you're a guy here today and uh, you love God, what sort of amazing things has he carved out for you to live for in this world? But on Father's Day, Today, I don't want to just talk to those of you who are dads or those of you who are men. I want to talk to everyone here who has a boy or a man in their life. All of you who are watching online or in Branson or here today, there's some male figure in your life, some person who you care an awful lot about. And we have mixed emotions. We have a myriad of emotions about the guys in our lives. Sometimes it's pride and joy and contentment. Sometimes it's anger and fear and hurt and frustration and confusion and powerlessness. But today God wants to give you another emotion, which is hope. You're gonna get this profound vision from scripture of what God wants to do in the life of the men and the boys in your world. And God's gonna show you the special opportunity you have to come alongside them so that they can become that. At Gateway, since we launched 21 years ago, we've been trying to figure out this puzzle of masculinity with some successes and some failures along the way. Back in the early days of Gateway, you used to do this thing called Dude Fest. Were any of you at Dude Fest? Yeah, I still have tetanus from that. Um, (laughs) Dude Dude Fest, the very first Dude Fest was made up of 50 smelly, sweaty, hot guys who descended on the Massengale Ranch. And it was... Uh, kind of this cross between Promise Keepers and Lord of the Flies. <laughs> you know, we talked about spiritual things that weekend, but we also smoked meat on sticks, you know, over open flames. And we expressed ourselves freely through bodily noises, and we talked affectionately about power tools and pro wrestling. Testosterone flowed like a river that weekend, my friends. <laughs> and part of the weekend, too, was competition. When we got there, Uh, We were divided into eight teams, and throughout the weekend, we competed in games of skill and chance and brute force. Doesn't this sound like a great Christian men's weekend? Yeah. Uh, Of course, the penultimate um, event in the competition at the end was the tug of war. You know, the tug of war were two... Uh, groups line up across from each other and they pull as hard as they can and the first team that's pulled across the line in the middle is the loser. And tug of war is a game of endurance and strategy and pure muscle. My team, unfortunately, had none of these things. (laughs) We had been defeated in every competition that entire weekend except for tug of war and in the tournament, uh, we had something in tug of war that is better than courage or strength or smarts. We had girth. There were some big boys on our team. And so we dominated tug of war through the tournament. Uh, We were like an immovable object. And finally, we got to the the final match, 
there. And the other team who was standing across from us, they knew they were defeated. I mean, uh, we had them outgunned or at least outweighed by 600 pounds. And so the, the, the conclusion seemed foregone, you know, like, like we were on our way to tug of war immortality. And so my team lined up against their team. We dug deep, the referee blew the whistle. We took a deep breath and we yanked with all of our might. Do you know what the other team did? They let go of the rope, those jerks. <laughs> and the force propelled all of us back into this heap of, you know, sweat and dirty bodies. And, and the other team was across from us and they were dancing like they had just won the Super Bowl. But we couldn't be mad because it was so hilarious. Now, uh, I'll admit I didn't feel like much of a man that weekend because I kept comparing myself to the athletic prowess of other guys who were around me. I walked around not knowing where it was that I fit in with all of them, and I wondered if the cool kids were going to like me. Everything was sort of hard for me that weekend until the last night around the campfire, one guy steps up and asks if he could share a little bit of his story. This dude fest guy gets up and he tells this heart-rending story about how he grew up in a Christian household and he went off to Texas Tech and he abandoned his faith and partied really hard. You've heard the story before, right? And, um, and uh, he spiraled into addiction for a couple of years to the point where he was living on the streets in Austin. One night while trying to sleep in an alley off of Congress Avenue, he remembered something. He remembered the Jesus of his youth. He remembered that restless hearts can find rest in God if they'll just turn back to him. And that night, he said he picked up his sleeping bag and left that alley and got into recovery. And he talked about how he met his wife in recovery and then uh, you know, fully gave himself to God at Gateway. And for a moment there in the firelight and the smoke around the campfire at the ranch, the puzzle pieces started falling into place for me. Maybe there's something about remembering God and being willing to step out in faith that defines Christian masculinity. Well, let's go back to the book of Genesis and see if we can even unpack this puzzle in a deeper way. You're kind of familiar with Genesis chapter one and how it flows. Uh, there are seven times where God speaks a word and springs into existence. There's light, there's space, there's oceans, there's plants, fish, birds, animals. But then there's a major pattern interrupt in Genesis chapter one, verse 26. There's a different kind of creation. There's a different way he creates and he does it uh, as a group, we'll find out. It says, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the birds and the plants and all that. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. There's some words that pop out in this verse. I want to talk through five words or phrases. The first one is lettuce. Not to be confused with lettuce, the supposed vegetable. Hey, what do you call the hard pieces of the Caesar salad at the bottom of the bowl, the last remains? All right, that was a bad dad joke. It's right there. Um, <laughs> God is referring here to a dialogue that he has been having with the other members of the Trinity. Let us do something together. And this is the first time in the history of the physical universe that God proclaims his relationality, that he's doing something together, and he does it in the context of creating men and women 
Next word is mankind. And the Hebrew word here is Adam, from where we get our word Adam, our name Adam. Adam, Adam means mankind, humanity, both men and women. Number three, our image in our likeness. Out of all the creatures in creation that God made, only one thing was made to be like him. That was Adam, humanity. And the word here in Hebrew for image is tzitzelim, uh, which refers to something that is similar but not identical to the thing it represents. So we were made to be similar to God in his moral person, in his intellectual person, in his emotional person, but especially in his relational person. We were created in the image of God. Why did God create Adam? Because God is a relational being. and He had been experiencing it in the Trinity and he wanted to experience it with us. He made us to be that way. God, that's God being God. It's what Jonathan Edwards, the great American theologian, called his dispensational ontology. God is relational. And so he made human beings, men and women, in his image so that we can experience a relationship with one another and we can also experience relationship with him just like he does in the Trinity. Now the Trinity is pretty complicated subject, right? And I've done all the study on the analogies and uh, you know, I went to seminary for this, I still don't get it. I still have major questions about the, the Trinity. And if you're wondering about the Trinity and wanted to explain to you or why the refrigerator if the refrigerator light uh, really shuts off when you close the door or are the Dallas Cowboys cursed, just send those to john.burke at gatewaychurch.com. It's johnburke at gatewaychurch.com. So our gender is an expression of our identity as relational beings. The fourth phrase, male and female, he created them. What I want you to see today is that words matter. The writer of Genesis picked certain words to describe masculinity and femininity, femininity, men and women. And the word he, here he uses for male is zakar, and I'm gonna talk about that in depth in just a moment. The word for female is nakeba, which literally means <laughs> punctured or bored through, something that has been opened and now can, can be entered. I don't know why I'm doing hand gestures for this. Uh, this is, <laughs> Okay, so, so, so the, the, those, those definitions, the, what the words mean are a, are a little bit, you know, uh, personal there, um, but really what you find out as you study femininity in Genesis and throughout scripture is that we represent, women represent the invitationality of God, that God calls people to him and he gives to them so that they reflect the glory of God. Okay. I don't have time today. This is about masculinity today, but hopefully, you know, sometime you'll call me back here and I can talk for 30 minutes about the opportunity of being a Christian woman because it is captivating. But if you flip your Bible page over one, you go to Genesis 2, it says, she shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. Here we have two different words for men and women. This isn't Zakar and Nakeba anymore. This is Woman is Isha and man is Ish. Now this shouldn't be confused with our English word Ish. Don't you hate the, the English word Ish? Um, yeah, I'll get that project done for you December-ish. Or the worst is when the guy from Spectrum Cable calls you and says, yeah, I'll be over to hook it up afternoon-ish. 
okay? So what is that? I'm supposed to wait around for four to six hours uh, because you said ish. What am I supposed to do for those four hours? Watch TV? Oh, wait, I can't because you need to drag your ish over to my house to hook it up. Well, ish and isha in Hebrew means male sex and female sex. They're talking about anatomy, about body parts. So in the first two chapters of Genesis, there's this really interesting distinction going on. There are sexes, ish and isha, because of the way their bodies are made. But gender is not body parts, it's identity. We are created with the opportunity to reflect the personality and the relationality of God's trinity. And so God made us with genders. Women reflect the invitationality of God. Men reflect something different, which we'll talk about in a moment. Okay, one more phrase from Genesis 1, so that they may rule over. A secondary reason God creates humans, first is for relationship, but a second is so that we can take care of creation. Oops. Uh, uh, the, the men and women are to do that together. They, you know, they're, they're to rule over the birds and the fish and the animals. Nowhere does it say in the first two that, that one gender is supposed to rule over another. I don't think that that was the intention in creation until after the fall uh, when things started to get difficult between men and women. Our gender was about togetherness, the way God made us, about doing important work together, about experiencing the relationship of God, each of us uniquely bringing a different type of God's personality into our bond with one another. So what does zakar mean, this word for men in Hebrew? Um, Some of my thoughts today have been drawn from a great book by Dr. Larry Crabb called Fully Alive. And in that book, he goes through a lot of the words for masculinity and femininity in the Bible. You know, it's not without controversy. Not all theologians agree with what he has to say. Uh, but in, in, in Hebrew, in Genesis 1, it says that God made us male. The word zakar. And when the writers of the New Testament come along later, they, you know, in the New Testament, they write in Greek. And the word for uh, male in Greek is arson. Okay. Mark chapter 10, verse 6, Jesus is preaching here about divorce, and he says, at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. God made them arson. Arson literally means one who lifts or carries, one who has the strength to take something from one place to another. But in Hebrew, the word zakar has several meanings. Uh, it, It refers to leaving a mark or having an impact or pushing in, here are my here I am with my hands again, sorry. Um, it it, it, it says, ha, means have an impact. But one of the other definitions of zakar in the ancient world is it referred to a royal official in the ancient Mesopotamian court who was given the task of reminding the king of what truly matters and then taking action on it. A zakar was someone who remembers something important and then does something about it. So Genesis was written back in the time of the Mesopotamian kings and their zakars. And the words that the writer of Genesis is intentionally choosing here and being inspired by God to share, it's about the core identity of men, that they are to remember what is true and to take action on it. These are cool words, arson, zakar. 
In fact, if you are a guy here today, you're a boy or a man, just turn to someone next to you and say to them in a manly voice, I am arson, I am Zakar. Say it. Doesn't that feel good? Okay, we don't wanna do this after church out there, okay? We don't wanna do it tomorrow at work. We don't want you standing up on your desk in the office shouting out, I am arson, I am Zakar. But if you do and the SWAT team comes, they have questions, remember it's john.burke at gatewaychurch.com. <clears throat> Zakar is part of the relational nature of God that is reflected in men. God remembers what is true and he moves forward in action. Genesis 8.1, God remembered Noah and then he caused the waters to disperse. Genesis 19.29, God remembered Abraham and his promise to him, and then he rescued his nephew Lot. Genesis 30, 22, God remembered Rachel, and he opened her womb. Okay, let's park here for a moment on Exodus 2, 23 to 25. It says, years passed and the king of Egypt died, but the Israelites continued to groan under their burden of slavery. They cried out for help, and their cry rose up to God, and God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he looked down on the people of Israel and he knew it was time to act. This is who God is. And this is part of the, the personality of God that men represent, that's wired into men. First of all, masculine men hear the cry of others. God heard the groaning of his people in slavery and it prompted something in his heart. And this is true of godly men, they pay attention to the needs around them. Jesus on the cross looked out and he saw his own mother who was suffering and he heard her cry and he did something about it. Number two, you see in this passage, a masculine man remembers what is true about God and what's true about life. See, in Exodus, God remembered the promises that he had made to the Jewish people, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And a Christian man, even if he's in uncertain or chaotic circumstances, he remembers what is true. He may feel insecure or he might be hurting or underappreciated, but a real man rises above the noise and remembers that God is real and that people are what matter and that troubles are temporary and there is hope ahead. Masculine men remember what's true. Number three, a masculine man takes action. In this passage, as a result of remembering, God sends Moses and he sends the 10 plagues to lead his people out of Israel or, or out of Egypt in slavery. That's his character and it's part of the character of men when we decide to take action when we're willing to overcome our circumstances, to get out of our comfort zone, and to move forward into the unknown. Now, does, do women have none of these attributes? Are these only exclusive to men? Not at all. But men have a unique opportunity given by God to represent some of these unique characteristics of God's personhood and the Trinity, to hear and to remember and to take action. That's why that night I was so drawn to that man's story around the campfire. Because he heard his own heart and remembered who he was in Christ and he picked up his sleeping bag and walked off of Congress Avenue. 
That's why in history I'm so drawn to people like Abraham Lincoln, who heard the barbarism and the suffering in slavery. And he remembered that all human beings are created in the likeness of God. And he was willing to take a risk and take action, even take a risk of splitting the country apart because of what was true. That's why I'm drawn to people in history like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a a German preacher. And he heard during the Nazi regime what the Nazis were doing to push down the Christian church. And he remembered that grace has the power to heal anything, even the tyrannical Nazi regime. And then once he remembered, he took action. And he participated in the attempted overthrow of Adolf Hitler. That's why I'm so drawn to Bruce Willis in the first Die Hard movie, you know? (laughs) He heard that there were terrorists in Nakatomi Towers, and he remembered that there were explosives uh, at the bottom of the elevator well, and and he he took action and and very profoundly proclaimed, yippee-ki-yay, well, that's probably not a good example. (laughs) When do I feel most masculine? It's when I'm doing something hard for God because he asked me to. When do I feel masculine? It's when I'm stepping out into the unknown knowing that God has my back. When uh, I see my wife and I hear in her voice and I can tell by the slump in her shoulders that there's something going on that's hurting in her soul and even though I might not feel like it or I might know how it's not gonna turn out, I decide to move toward her. That's when I feel masculine. I feel masculine when I remember the potential of my kids and I push past their defenses and I go and speak to them God's words. That's when I feel masculine. Men who are here today, you are a lot of things, but you are also Zakar. God places you in chaotic and difficult spots where you hear the needs and the cries of others, maybe loudly, maybe subtly, when there's a wrong that needs to be righted, a thing that needs to be done, men, have your ears been open to that? And men, God doesn't call call you to overanalyze or debate with him or pull together a committee to figure out what to do or to believe that you're not the right person to step up. All God asks you to do is remember, to remember what's important in life, that people are important to remember who he is, that he'll never leave you or forsake you, and to remember finally who you are, that you were created for action. Masculine men take bold action. And if I could just say a word to the boys who are here today. You know, if you're under 15 years old, God made you strong and good and brave. He made you with incredible purposes that you're gonna figure out better when you get to be older, but you don't have to wait till you're grown up because um, every day God puts small opportunities in front of you, boys. Actions that need to be taken, needs that people have, words that need to be said. And though you might not feel strong, all you have to remember is that God is inside of you and because he has so much power and because he's made you so wonderfully, you can have an impact in your school on your sports teams, with your groups of friends, and your own family. That's what it means, boys, to be a man. So Larry Crabb writes in his book 
about how masculinity gets twisted sometimes. He writes this, until a man's movement towards other reveals God's movement towards him, until a man remembers that he bears God's image and moves to reveal God's character to others, that man will pursue counterfeit masculinity with the fierce loyalty of an addict, whether through displayed talent, pleasurable lust, or recognized success. So we don't feel fully alive as godly men. We go chasing after counterfeit masculinity. I can remember uh, a time recently when I was at HEB and I wasn't f- feeling very manly because Stephanie had sent me there to buy, buy some girl things. And, and uh, I remember standing at the checkout line and I looked at the news rack and I saw this cover, Marky Mark Wahlberg <laughs> on Men's Health Magazine telling me what it's supposed to, I'm supposed to be to be masculine. I'm supposed to get back in shape in 28 days with my belly and arms and chest, okay? It's, it says there, you know, I need to be like Mark Wahlberg, you know, starring in, co-starring in films with foul-mouthed teddy bears. And, and if I want to be really successful, I need to, it says, I need to 10X my life. I need to get more done and stop wasting time. And if I really want to be a man down there in the lower right can, I need to have insanely hot sex. I don't even know what that is, but it sounds wonderful. <laughs> And that day between the magazine telling me all the things I'm not as a man and holding a box of tampons in my basket, I wasn't feeling so manly. Larry Crabb writes that the core terror, the core fear of men is weightlessness, that we are not weighty, that we make no discernible impact around us. This is the opposite of Zakar, which is one who remembers and moves in power with God to take action of consequence. And these days, there is an epidemic of men in our country who feel weightless. Three out of four suicides are men. It's a leading cause of death of men under 35 years of age. Men are three times more likely to become dependent on alcohol. One in three guys is chronically lonely, and that's up from one in five just 10 years ago. When men don't feel weighty, they go chasing after masculinity by conquering, by climbing the corporate ladder, by achieving, by testing themselves in athletics against others or in video games, uh, by seeking out sexual pleasure and by pushing sexual boundaries, by taking risks, by dominating others, and sometimes, yes, by dominating women. And these pursuits for a man give him kind of a saccharine sugar high for a few moments, but then the endorphins run out and he goes back to feeling weightless and alone. I don't know what toxic masculinity is. It's a phrase that gets bandied about on our college campuses and in our media. But I'm convinced as a Christian man, it's not my masculinity that's toxic, it is my sin that's toxic that um, when I don't hear the needs of others and when I forget who God is and who I'm supposed to be and when I refuse to take action, that is toxic. What can we do for people like me in that situation? What can you do for the boys and men in your life who have this amazing, wonderful opportunity to reflect the character of God, but they're tempted to chase after false masculinity. What can we do to support our grandsons and our sons and our brothers and our husbands and our boyfriends? Four things really quick. First of all, expect more. 
When you see your man lost or confused or weightless or lazy or, or avoiding taking action that he knows he needs to take, don't make excuses for him. Expect more, and by expect more, I mean have a vision for who he could become if he were fully alive in Christ. If he were using his gifts and fully alive, what could he be? And if you cannot see that in your man or the boy in your life, then pray about it. God, show me who my husband could be. Help me to see uh, the potential that you see in him. Or God, help me to view my brother differently, where he is fully using his gifts for you. In the New Testament, there's pastor named Timothy who was put in charge of the largest church in the Roman world and uh, nobody thought he had the gravitas to pull it off to lead it and so Paul his mentor writes him two letters and Paul gives him this vision that he sees for Timothy he says in 2 Timothy 2 this is why I remind you to fan into flames the spiritual gift God gave you when I laid my hands on you for God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity but of power and love and self-discipline what an amazing vision Paul says to him, God's given you, Timothy, so many supernatural gifts. So don't be timid about it. Don't be fearful. (laughs) You are a man of power and love and self-discipline. That's incredible. Is there a man or a boy in your life who just needs to be reminded the vision that God has for him? And maybe all you need to do is write down a few sentences and go to that boy or man and just, just share it with him. Number two, give five parts encouragement for every one part of criticism. Uh, We don't have a lot of time to unpack this. Hebrews 10 says, let us think about ways we can motivate one another. Uh, The men in your life, if they are doing acts acts of love and good works, they need encouragement, they need affirmation. There's a psychologist named John Gottman who said, "For uh, for every negative interaction we have, with people, we need to have five positive interactions. You actually could find a way when couples were about to break apart when they fell below that five interaction rule. Okay? When we expect more of men in our lives, it might cause them to be discouraged. And maybe just a little word of encouragement from you can cause him to remember who he really is. Number three, pray for what he is doing and what he's becoming. Your prayers can tr- change the trajectory of a man's life. Listen to how Paul prays for his people. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. That's Colossians 1, 9 to 10. He's praying that they would have knowledge that they would remember, that they would take action and bear fruit. Are you familiar with St. Augustine? Probably more than the apostles, or, or sorry, after the apostles, more than anyone else. He was responsible for our view of God today, but he was not always a Christ follower. He used to be a party dude in his youth. I mean, he, if there was a drink, he would drink it in his youth. If there was a plant, he would smoke it. You know, if there was a young maiden, he would take her to bed. If there was a chariot parked on the side of the road, he would steal it like Justin Bieber and drive it through the streets of the city. <laughs> And one day, Augustine told his mom, Monica, who was a Christ follower, he said, I'm going to the ultimate party. I'm going to Rome. And Monica was crushed because she knew that Rome would be his ruin. But she prayed for him every day while he was gone. It was in Rome that he found Christ, and he became one of the greatest men of faith. Now, 
listen, you may not, you may, you may have a man or a boy in your life who is not responding to the vision that God has for them. Words of encouragement don't mean anything, but you can pray. You can be on your knees every day and pray for them. The last thing I'll tell you, uh, and I'll cut it short here, uh, don't give up on him. So men feel weightless. They go chasing after other things to prop themselves up. And what ends up happening is that that doesn't work and they feel all the more confused. That is the very last time that you should abandon a man. And maybe what the boy or the son or the grandson or the nephew or the friend or the brother needs most of all right now from you is to just go stand next to them in the middle of their dip in life and say, I'm not going anywhere. I believe in who you can be. As we close, I want you to listen to the prayer in this song of a man who feels weightless and he feels like he doesn't count, but he has this yearning of God inside of him. And as you listen to the words of the song, I want you to think about the men and the boys in your life and what God is calling you to and an opportunity to support them to become who God made them to be. Listen to this.